in Revelation chapter 17. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 17. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that peace is a promise that you keep. And in our lives, so many times we have fear and anxiety. And we desire to live in your peace that surpasses understanding. So we give you thanks. We give you praise for your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness. And we also give you those things that we're concerned about. Those things that are weighing on our hearts. And as you have those this evening, just just give those to the Lord. We thank you that we can cast our cares upon you because you, you care for us. And Father, we receive your peace. We thank you that you're in control. Father, would you really place in our hearts a renewed expectancy of the soon return of Jesus, that it wouldn't just be something that we read about, but something that we look forward to. So Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight, we're going to look at the fall of Babylon in two chapters, chapter 17 and chapter 18. Chapter 17 is the fall of religious Babylon. And then chapter 18 is the fall of economic and political uh, Babylon. So we're going to jump right into this. There's a lot there for us. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So one of the seven angels that had the seven bull judgments now comes and talks to John and shows to him the judgment of the great harlot who sits on, on the water. So th- for this chapter, we're going to see this evil woman, the great harlot, and she's coming up out of the waters. Later on in verse 15, we'll be told that the waters represent the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, and, and the tongues. The, this evil woman, this great harlot, is Babylon representing false religion and leading people's hearts away from the Lord. The analogy is adultery or fornication, and the idea is when someone goes into false religion and denies the Lord, they're really committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. And Babylon, this great harlot, is leading people away from God. So verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So the kings of the earth they find themselves mixed up with this great harlot committing spiritual fornication and they're intoxicated with this false religion. So she came and carried me away in the spirit. So he came and carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. So John is carried into the wilderness in the spirit. Not in his body, but in a vision. And in this vision, he sees now 
the woman sitting upon the beast. The great harlot is sitting upon the beast. The beast has names of blasphemy, blasphemy against God, has seven heads and ten horns. So that's, that's quite the beast. Now, thankfully for us, later in this chapter, the angel gives us the meaning. The angel gives us the interpretation. And I always love that as a student of the Bible and especially as a pastor teacher, right? When God just says, here it is, this is exactly what this means. In verse four, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious clothes and pearls. So, so looking very good. Yeah, she's, she's well-dressed. She's got purple and scarlet and gold and precious stones and all of the jewelry, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So inside of this gold cup is the filthiness, is the fornication, is the adultery that she's leading the nations in. So it looks good, but is filled with wickedness. In verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. So this woman, who's dressed well with a gold cup of wickedness, has labeled upon her head, Mystery, the Babylon. This title that we read, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. The 144,000, remember them? They had the name of God upon their head. And upon her forehead is this title of being Babylon the Great. And, and so this ties us back in Scripture to Babylon. The city of Babylon is used 287 times in Scripture. The only city that's mentioned more than Babylon is Jerusalem. The Bible could be titled the Tale of Two Cities, right? So Babylon in Genesis chapter 10, we see Nimrod was the builder of Babylon. In modern day Iraq, along the Euphrates River, his name means we will rebel. His wife was one who historically led people into false religion. There was this claim of a virgin birth, a counterfeit to what would come in, in uh, Jesus Christ. In Genesis 11, we know the Tower of Babel, right? The, the Tower of Babylon was really an independent work against God. It was humanity's best attempt to say, we don't want anything to do with God. We're going to defy God. And God then changed their, their languages and very quickly humbled that. And we go through the Old Testament and we find Nebuchadnezzar coming against the children of Israel, destroying the temple in 586 BC, Daniel growing up in, in Babylon. So this city, Babylon, has a, a rich biblical history. Today, it is modern-day Iraq. We have the ancient ruins of, of Babylon. And as we read here in chapter 17, Babylon is referring to false religion that leads to idolatry and the rejection uh, of the Lord and the mother of harlots. So, so Babylon really influenced others in false religion and brought about great abomination uh, to the Lord. In the time of Nebuchadnezzar, as they did worship their, their false gods, they attributed to the mother and the child deity and then part of their worship was that they would then have temple prostitutes. So sexual sin was very much tied into this, this false religion and this abomination. 
In verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So this harlot and this false religion really hates Jesus and Jesus' followers and kills a lot of Christians. And they're drunk. They're intoxicated with the blood of saints and the blood of the, the martyrs of, of Jesus. They don't want anything to do with the followers of Jesus Christ. And when John sees this, he's amazed. And he's, he's blown away by the tremendous persecution of the church. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beasts that carry her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So John is marveling and he's confused and the angel's saying, you don't need to be confused. You don't need to be marveling. I'm going to tell you the meaning of the woman, the harlot, and the beast, and the, the seven heads, and the, the ten horns. And this is comforting to us. What causes us to marvel and be confusing, and be confused, is not confusing to the Lord and his messengers. It's not confusing to God and to, to his angels. So we get this explanation of the beast and the woman that rides the beast. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition or destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So those that don't have salvation. If you don't have salvation, your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. How come from the foundations of the world? Because God knows from the foundations of the world those who will believe and, and trust in him. So the beast, the description of the beast is that he was and is not, but will ascend out of the bottomless pit. This is referring to the Antichrist. You remember earlier on the Antichrist had a mortal wound. It did not die, but it appeared like he was going to die and was healed, mimicking the, the crucifixion and, and resurrection of, of Christ. So the beast, the Antichrist, is identified here. Coming out of the bottomless pit is, is hell. It's the abyss. There's the demonic reality to the Antichrist and uh, to the harlot. And the attention of the world is upon them. The attention of the world is, is upon this, this false uh, religion that's against Christ and against Christ's followers. And many have tried to pin this on one particular false religion. I think it's a lot bigger than that. And it probably encompasses all false religions. The, the Babylon system... And these, these false religions about who God is, it would encompass all that are against Christ. And it seems to me at the end times, all of these false religions will have a way of coming together and being like-minded uh, against Christ. When we think of, of tolerance, a lot of times Christianity is intolerant because it's exclusive in this, Right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus isn't going to share space with Buddha. He's not going to share space with Muhammad or Joseph Smith. He says, I alone am God. I am alone the, the way uh, to the Father. So you can see how false religions could come together to, to hate Christ and to, to hate Christ followers. And they're marveling at the beast and they're marveling at the harlot. In verse 9, here, in the, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So the seven heads are, are seven mountains, and the woman sits upon these seven heads. 
There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So the seven heads speak of seven kings. And five of the kings have already come and gone. There's one who is the sixth king. Then there'll be a seventh, and he's on the scene for just a short period of time. So very clearly, the seven kings are seven prominent leaders. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition, going to destruction. So the eighth leader is the Antichrist and is going to come out of the seventh. So the seventh king that is there for a short time is going to set up the beast and set up uh, the Antichrist. Are you guys with me? Like, did you just have dinner and you're like, oh man, Babylon and the beast and the, the harlot. Well, here we are. We're here together. Amen? So verse 12. Then the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So not only is there going to be seven kings, but then there's going to be a group of, of ten kings or ten nations coming together, and they're all with the Antichrist and propping up the harlot. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So the kings and the horns, the seven kings and the ten horns, they're all together with one mind, and they give their submission, they give their power and authority, their surrender to the beast, to the Antichrist. And this hit me If they can get unified around the Antichrist, how much more can we get unified around Jesus Christ? And in Ephesians 4, it tells us all the things that we share in common as believers, that we're one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Holy Spirit. You think of all the unity that that we have in Christ. For us to then to be able to say, we're getting behind Christ's mission, you know, Jesus said that we would be known as his followers by our love for one another. The way that we, we, we love and we care for, for one another. The unity that we enjoy. Many times when there's unity amongst believers, God's spirit moves, doesn't he? But when we get our eyes off of the Lord and we lose our unity, then there's great division. And the enemy loves to swim in the waters of division, doesn't he? So if they can rally around the Antichrist, how much more so can we rally around Jesus Christ? In verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb. This is all about a hatred for Jesus. So the beast, the ten kings, the seven kings are all coming against the Lamb. They're coming against Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called are called chosen and faithful. I think a great title for the book of Revelations, if you were attempting to give it one, would be the lion and the lamb. But the most appropriate title would be the lamb and the lion. Because throughout Revelation, we see over and over that John describes Jesus as the lamb. It's the most way that Jesus is referred to as the lamb. Like When you just read verse 14, it doesn't seem to all go together. You got got the the lamb, but the lamb overcomes those who are making war against him. And then he's the Lord of hosts, and he's the king of kings. He's the the lion. 
But that's the mystery of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of Jesus Christ, that his innocence, his purity, his humility to die upon the cross, but yet he's the conquering king. Do you get a little like freaked out about Revelation and a little bit fearful about Revelation? You're like, man, I don't know about all this and there's persecution and what's, what's happening here? Well, guess what? We should not be fearful, but we should be excited about Jesus Christ because he kicks can. That's what verse 14 says. You know, like they made war with him and he's like, no, I'm overcoming all of this. It's time for me to have the last word and to put things at rest. Verse 15, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So where the harlot comes out of the water, she sits upon the water. It represents the people, the multitudes, and the nations, the, the tongues. The false religion, the Babylon's system, it impacts the whole entire world. In verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. The unity didn't last too long, okay? So now the ten kings turn on the harlot, turn on this religious system, and completely destroy her, and don't want anything to do with her. It seems to be that the Antichrist and these 10 leaders use this religious system to gain power, and once they have the power, then they destroy the religious system. A lot of the false religions are motivated by man's greed. When you look at false religions, they're trying to control people, and many times control people through, through wickedness for their own purposes. And then once they get what they want, they turn on this religion that they championed so much. The religion was simply a, a tool to, to control people. Do you know that God's really not into religion? God's into relationship. The one true living God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us, he, he's not offering a, a religion. He's offering a relationship in which he controls our lives. Jesus controls our lives. We're surrendering to, to him to be our Lord. We're not surrendering to a church. The church isn't my Lord. You know, we, we love the church. We are thankful for the church. We're thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ, but we, we serve Jesus. He, he's our Lord, and we're in, in relationship with him. In verse 17, for God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purposes, to be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So God is ultimately in control. And God uses these 10 kings to bring judgment upon the harlot. We should be encouraged about this even now because when we look at things internationally and also nationally, we go, man, there's chaos. There's chaos in the world But ultimately, God's in control, and he's working things out according to his plan. Now, knowing that, it doesn't cause us to be passive or not to be engaged, but we can rest that the the Lord's in control. I don't know how all this is working out on an international scale, but I know that God does. I don't know what's happening in our country nationally, but the Lord does. And here we see God is behind all of this. It's not the ten kings, it's, it's the Lord. And as God is allowing it, and he put it into their hearts for for his purposes so that he could destroy 
this harlot, this religious system. In verse 18, and the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The harlot is the great city of Babylon. And this great city of Babylon also has an economic and political aspect as well. And that's what chapter 18 addresses. Verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel coming from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. This angel comes down from heaven, has tremendous authority, and is able to illuminate the earth with his glory. I think this is amazing. Like, to see this unfold and to see this angel light up the sky, light up the earth, and illuminate, it can't help but for us to think about the glory of God. If an angel is this glorious, just think about how glorious God is. You know, to be able to behold God. We're told that there's no need for sun in heaven because Christ lights up all of eternity. There's no night in heaven because because Christ, his countenance, it it radiates and fills uh, the earth with with, with his glory. In verse 2, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So in one moment, we're going to see in one hour, God destroys this city, Babylon. And then Babylon's become a dwelling place for the demonic, a prison for every foul spirit, and every unclean thing, or every hated, hated bird. So now, are you guys ready to try to unpack what is this city Babylon? So there's a lot of ideas on this, of what exactly is this city of Babylon that's uh, referred to. So here's several ideas, and then I'm going to let you sort it out, okay? So one thought is that this is the ancient city of Babylon resurrected and rebuilt, In Jeremiah 51 and also Isaiah 13, you could write those down and read them and study them later. Jeremiah 51 and Isaiah 13, there's prophecies about the ancient city of Babylon that it's going to be destroyed to the point where, and it says, no Arabian will pitch his tent. Uh, Well, there'll be no herds, no, no cattle. Nobody's dwelling there. It's not inhabited at all. So the question is, was that fulfilled because Babylon was, was destroyed? And some say yes, that that was fulfilled. And others say no, because there's always been a few people that have still been inhabiting the ancient city uh, of, of Babylon. Now, ancient city of Babylon is modern-day Iraq along the Euphrates River. It is possible, I think, for this area of the world to be rebuilt to be an economic power. Uh, we see with the Arab Emirates being built up so quickly, and these, these cities are amazing and, and phenomenal. If God wanted to, there could be a, a world-dominating empire-type city that could come out of ancient Babylon. So, so that's, a, that's a possibility. Uh, some say, well, even though it's called Babylon, it's another large city. Some think that it's possibly Rome. Uh, Rome being the, the world-dominating city of the time of John and, and ultimately is going to have the, the center stage. 
Uh, some people think the United States is, is, is Babylon. So they think that Babylon's referring to an, another uh, city. Others think that, that it is speaking of a primary city that has great economic power. It's very evident through reading through this chapter that this is a city that is in end times, that has great merchandise that, that is destroyed, but ultimately it represents the world system. Ultimately, it represents hearts apart from Christ. And that is the big idea of Revelation 17 and 18. That there's lies out there, there's false religion that denies Christ, that denies God, and that also there is this world-dominating love for money that's consumed the hearts and lives of people where we love comfort and we love luxury and ultimately God judges. But the awesome thing that fills us with wonder about prophecy that's yet not fulfilled is we ultimately don't know, right? We, we ultimately don't have this all, all figured out. In chapter 17, it said the mystery of Babylon, didn't it? And so it, we, we look at this and we go, well, Babylon could be this or Babylon could be that. But ultimately, it does speak of, of God's judgment of hearts that are apart from Christ. So verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So not only are the nations affected, the kings, the leaders, by Babylon, but also the people. The people have drunk the wine as well. They've drunk the Kool-Aid, and they've committed spiritual adultery, fornication, and then they've entered with the merchandise, and they've entered into the abundance of her luxury. And everything that we'll read about Babylon speaks of luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of here, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. So God is speaking to his people and saying, don't have anything to do with Babylon. Don't have anything to do with this false religious system. Don't fall prey to the, the love of money. There's quite a statement that Paul gives us to Timothy, and he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money in and of itself is an evil, but when, when money has our affection, but money is, is our love, then that causes us to do all kinds of, of evil. And so there's that warning, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. In verse 5, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Sounds a lot like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Her, her sins have reached the heavens, and God looks down and remembers her iniquity. Render to her just as she's rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed. Mixed trouble for her. Render literally means to pay back. Pay back what she has dished out. And then pay her back double. In Exodus 22, it tells us that you had to pay back double if you robbed from somebody. If you were the thief and you robbed from them and you wanted to make it right according to God's eyes, you would pay back double. So it could be that Babylon made its money through thievery, through stealing from people, but God requires that the judgment's going to be double of what they dished out. In verse 17 in the measure that she has glorified herself and lived in luxury, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am no widow. 
and will not see sorrow. So you can see how this luxury and this love of money led to self-glorification, prideful arrogance that thought, I will never be removed off my throne. I've got it so good. I've got so much money, so much luxury, so much comfort. I will not see sorrow. I will not be in the position of, of the widow. Now, I'm not saying that the United States is Babylon. I think that that's uh, almost being too arrogant in and of itself. It's almost thinking too much of ourselves to think, well, we must be, we must be Babylon. But I do see this attitude in our culture. I see this attitude in, in our country that thinks, you know, we're, we're above suffering. We're, we're above ever being humbled. We're, we're, we're very prideful. We're very arrogant that we're going to always have our luxury, that we're always going to have our comfort. But if you're a student of history, that's not true, isn't it? We're a relatively young country, and countries that have had great prosperity, it's only there for a while. It's only there for, for a season, and it, it would be very surprising that we continued in the kind of financial luxury that, that we had. It doesn't take a lot to tip our country over financially, right? But yet, I'm not speaking of the church, but, but our culture is very arrogant to think, well, the, the carpet's not going to ever come out from underneath the, the, the United States. In verse 8, therefore her plagues will come in one day, speaking of God destroying Babylon, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who commit fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her. When they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for the fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for one hour your judgment has come. So Babylon's judgment causes the other nations of the world that committed fornication with her to be humbled, to stand back and go, whoa, what is, what is taking place? Because it hits them where it gets their attention in their pocketbook and their ability to get all of their luxury and their comfort. And as we see going through the rest of this chapter, they're not mourning over the loss of human life in Babylon. They're not mourning about their spiritual condition before God. They're mourning over the loss of all of the physical things that they love. And it really shows the priorities of, of the world. You know, pay attention to what we mourn about because it shows what we really care about. Pay attention to what the world mourns about. What, what causes the world to, to, go, to go to grief? Is it relationship with God? Is it the loss of human life? Or is it the loss of things? And verse 11, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Amazon Prime doesn't work. You know? I couldn't get it in three days. You know, I couldn't get it in one day, right? And they're, they're mourning over the fact that that Walmart is not there. I can't get all the stuff that, that I need at, at Walmart, right? And it, so it hits them, gets their attention. Here's all of the things that they're missing. Merchandise of gold and silver, jewelry, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, clothing, Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, home furnishings. 
and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense. Essential oils. God called it even before it was popular. <laughs> Woo! Right? It's like, man, I, I can't get my essential oils up in here. Wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep. Whole Foods, Trader Joe's and natural grocers go down all at once, right? It's like, I can't get it. I can't. I'm in and out, you know, five guys, Chipotle. Now we're starting to hit home a little bit. Fine flour, there goes Panera Bread. It's, all of this is coming through Babylon and they're mourning. They're saying, I, I, I can't get these things. Horses and chariots, it hits automotive as well. And then, and bodies and souls of men. Babylon was involved in human trafficking. This is a city where you could get sex slaves. You could get slaves that would, would do your work uh, for you. And that was the ultimate comfort or the ultimate luxury was, was having someone be enslaved uh, to you. Anything really from verse 11 down to verse 13, does it describe needs? Is that really speaking of the needs in our lives? Babylon was all about the luxury. Babylon was all about the comfort. And we're making a lot of money off of, of selling these things. And the world mourns because they don't have their luxury and their comfort. And this speaks to us because what did Jesus tell us? He said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. Be willing to suffer. Don't just live for comfort and luxury. Take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. And it's very easy for us in our flesh to fall in love with luxury and comfort. And, and before we even know it, that Babylon has affected our souls. That this religious system and this city has worked itself into the very fabric of our being and we are serving our comforts and we're serving our luxuries. And we don't want anyone to touch our comforts, or our luxuries, including Jesus, our Lord. Say, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't take my free time. I'll I'll follow you as long as you don't touch my bank account. You know, I'll I'll follow you as long as you promise to to keep me healthy. Jesus never promised a, a safe life. It's not safe and secure to follow Jesus, right? He's like, man, this is hard and this is difficult, but this is worthwhile, and denying yourself and taking up your cross and, and following Jesus, that's when you find life. And that's when you find uh, abundant life in Christ because like we're studying in the book of Ecclesiastes, can these things satisfy apart from Christ? If you don't know Christ and he's not your Lord and we're not serving him, is, is ivory gonna satisfy? Is jewelry gonna satisfy? Is, is the best steak with the best glass of wine gonna, gonna satisfy? No, it, it's not. And so this shows us the, the priorities of the world and what can easily become our priorities as well. In verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. So it's the fruit that they longed for, it, it's gone. In verse 15, the merchants of these things 
who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. So they're watching from a distance. They don't want to get too close and saying, alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and purple. For when one hour, great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ships, sailors, as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning saying, what is like this great city? So whatever this city is, it has access to ships and, and to the sea. Everything was lost in one hour. The judgment comes in, in one hour. God in his love for us says, don't love money. Don't make money your master. Don't love things because it can be lost in a moment, can it? Serve Jesus, love Jesus, surrender to Jesus because uh, that's eternal. You can imagine all of the people that put all of their, their life into Babylon and then Babylon's gone in a moment. It's all gonna be burned up. Ultimately, it's all gonna be burned up. All the things of this world are gonna be burned up. In verse 19, they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, alas, alas, the great city, in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been made desolate. Shows the love of money, shows the loss of money, and it shows the helplessness of money, doesn't it? It's pretty phenomenal how bummed out they are. You know, they're, they're throwing dirts on their head, and they're weeping and wailing, and I'm sure tweeting, and Instagram, and Facebook live feed, oh, you know, all because of the merchandise that's lost. But notice the response of heaven. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you and holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So heaven is rejoicing because God has that final and last word of, of judgment. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Matthew 18, Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, to sin, that would be better for you that a, a millstone was tied around your neck and you were cast into to the sea. God doesn't waste words. And so here when we see a great millstone, it speaks to the fact of, that Babylon caused people to stumble. Babylon led people into sin. And now they're being cast with a, a millstone and the, the city is destroyed swiftly. In verse 22, the sound of the harpist, the, the musicians, the flutist, the trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore, nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore, completely destroyed. The entertainment's gone. The manufacturing uh, is gone. In verse 23, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. No more lights coming from the city of Babylon. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. No more weddings. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Your, for your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Sorcery being witchcraft. And through this witchcraft there was 
a deception. Also in the Greek, the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia, which we get our word drugs. So, so drugs and witchcraft could have been mixed uh, together, which is often the case. And when someone begins to take drugs, they're opening themselves up to the demonic realm, to sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints of all who were slain on the earth. So speaks of all the Christians that were killed by Babylon. Chapter 19, next week in our study, is the second coming of Jesus Christ, leading into heaven and all of eternity. Only Christ could make things right and bring judgment upon Babylon, this false religious system, and this economic and political system. And it's only Jesus Christ that can deal with Babylon in our hearts. When you think back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan comes and tempts. And what does he say to Eve? Has God really said? Has God really said? Satan's wanting to trick. He's wanting to deceive. He, he's the father of lights. Or, and the father of lies, excuse me. And the way that he deceives is by putting on false light. We live in a time where there's a tremendous amount of spiritual deception in God's name, in the name of Christianity, in the name of of the scriptures. So many things are being taught and people are being deceived. And we have to be wise. And we need to make sure that we're believing the truth and we're following the truth. And there's only one way to do that. And that's to study the scriptures for yourself through the power and infilling of the Holy Spirit. Another lie of the enemy is that you can't understand the scriptures. Whenever there's been great spiritual revival, there's been a returning to the word of God, to studying the word of God, believing the word of God, and following the word of God to where the word of God is not just something that we approach as a hobby or maybe I'll get to it if I have time, but this is God's love letter to me and I see God's great love for me and I want to follow the truth. And I don't want to scare anyone, but I want us to be alert. We see how hideous this false religious system is in this chapter, and even though we're not there yet, the deception is on the scene. And so you've got to be studying the scriptures for yourself. And one of the things I hope that is happening in our lives as you come here to RMC, if this is your your home church, as we're studying the word, we're studying books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, that you go, you know, I can do this on my own. I, I can open up the word And I can read a chapter, and the Holy Spirit lives in me, and I can start to understand what it says and and what it means to the point if some pastor gets up and tells you, well, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da about Jesus Christ, or da-da-da-da-da-da-da about how you should live your life, that you're going, well, wait a second. You know, that that doesn't line up. That doesn't line up with 
with the word of God. Could a pastor pull the wool over your eyes? I hope not, because you're studying the word. You, you know it uh, for, for yourself, and it's so important. You know, Satan's trying to get the message out about sexuality that's not God's message about sexuality, but it's coming out as God's message on sexuality. And you're like, wait a second, I better get this from, I better get this from God's word, you know, to really know the word of God uh, for yourself. And only Jesus can do that in my life. It, it's Jesus that gives me the hunger for the word of God. It's a relationship with, with, with Jesus Christ. And then it's only Jesus that can deal with the love of money and the love of comfort and the love of, of luxury in our lives. It, it's the greatness of Jesus when we see how good he is and his consistent love, his steadfast love and what he's done on the cross where all of a sudden we go, you know, that money doesn't have that same hold on my heart. Christ, Christ does that inside of us. St. Francis said that he heard a lot of confessions about sin, but no one ever confessed to the sin of covetousness, <laughs> right? And to realize about myself, I, I'm coveting these things. I, I, I'm longing for these things, and it's Jesus who is gonna deal with and crucify the love of money in my life. If we're approaching life this way of saying, well, if I just had this, I would be set. If I just had this much money, I, I would be set. No, that's not true. It's Jesus. He's the one who satisfies. It's Jesus who brings uh, contentment in our lives. When we think about giving, I think it's important to look at Christ's teaching on giving. God wants us to give money to his work. And, and I'm not saying this, that you would try to, to get more money for Rocky Mountain Calvary. But the answer to the love of money in my heart is giving. The answer to your heart over the love of money is giving. When we give financially to the work of God that he lays upon our hearts, it reminds us this belongs to the Lord. It reminds us this is all fading away. This is all passing away, and I'm, I'm investing in kingdom work. And we don't pass the plate. We leave giving between you and the Lord. There's boxes in the back, or you can give online. But I hope as a church, we don't miss out on the biblical giving, the biblical teaching of giving. Because giving, financially, actually giving, giving money, frees our heart from greed, doesn't it? How do you grow kids if you're a parent? You encourage them to give. That's a way to, to practically grow their hearts. It's, it's more about growing their character than anything else. And, and our Heavenly Father is the same way. He's saying, Eric, this is going to grow your character. This is going to free you from being greedy. This is going to free you from the love of money. So, so give and share and be a blessing and invest in, in God's work. And thankfully, Jesus is here. Thankfully that he, he loves us and he can deal with, with Babylon inside of our hearts. And I hope that Tonight and the next few weeks, God just recharges our longing for his return. I encourage you to read chapter 19 because Jesus is coming back and he's gonna set everything straight. So let's stand and let's pray together. Jesus, in a lot of ways, these are heavy chapters. They're heavy from the aspect of how far hearts get away from you and how deception is, is very real. 
and we see our own self-deception of our sinful flesh, but also the lies of the enemy. And so would you, Jesus, just renew our hunger for, for the word? Not only to spend time in the word, but the authority of the word, that we would study it, believe it, and follow it through the power of your spirit. God, you know our hearts. You know our hearts to gravitate to the things that we can see, the comfort, the luxury, the love of money. And would you, Jesus, just crucify us to that and cause us to be alive to you, that we really would be willing to let go of the comforts, to let go of the luxury, and to follow you. So would you move in our hearts and bless this time of communion. In Jesus' name, 